You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Let's jump right into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, We've got a lot here, and so we're I'm going to do my best to kind of work us through uh, the the varying movements here, and we'll arrive at what I hope is obviously a helpful conclusion. But let's just read the first uh, couple of verses as Paul um, takes us back to really a, a whole other part of the Bible. And so this is where I always... Uh, I, I always enjoy finding the links between what is written in the New Testament, those letters, those books, uh, those historical accounts that come after Jesus, and just how linked, just how connected, just how consistent they are with all of the writings in the Old Testament, those writings that were written before the coming of Jesus. And Paul is going to make some very clear links for us this morning, and what we will see is that God has been about the same work since the beginning of time. And so, verse 1 says this. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, this is interesting that he says our fathers because he's not only speaking to Jews. In the Corinthian church, there are many Gentiles, and yet he uses the word our fathers. That's significant. Hold on to that. It says, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is a reference to when Israel, the people of God, were delivered from Egypt. Many of us, whether we know the Bible or not, have probably heard some account of that story. In verse 2, he says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, there's, there's a lot that we could do right here, but again, I'm just, I just want to remind us of the story that Paul is referencing. So, Paul is going all the way back to the book of Exodus. It's one of those first five books um, in the Bible. Um, and in Exodus, what we come to find out is that Israel, the, the people of God, right, Abraham's descendants, had been enslaved in Egypt for north of 400 years. And yet God had not forgotten them, and God promises to set them free. He sends this man named Moses to do that work on his behalf. And of course, he goes into this dialogue with Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh to let his people, let God's people go. Pharaoh politely declines several times in spite of what I would consider several motivating factors. Um, and, And eventually what happens is that that Pharaoh gives in. Right after nine, ten plagues, Pharaoh says, okay, all right, be free. And he sends them off, he sends them out of Egypt, Moses leads them out, and then Pharaoh has a change of heart, right? And he sends his armies after them, and there's this climactic moment where Moses and all of the people of Israel are pinned 
Before them lies the Red Sea, and behind them, Pharaoh's armies. And of course, again, most of us have heard this story, so we we know what happens next, right? God tells Moses to wade out into the water, to take his staff, and to plant it there. And the Lord parts the waters of the Red Sea, and God's people, the Israelites, are given safe passage through the Red Sea to the other side. And the Egyptian armies that are following are swallowed up in the sea as the Lord closes that safe passage on them. And this is the event that Paul is referencing here. And he says, our fathers. So again, he's saying something significant here, right? He's saying that to belong to God's people, you no longer have to be a Jew, you no longer have to be an Israelite, but that if you have called upon Christ, then His fathers, God's people, are now your people. They are your ancestors in the same way that they were Paul's, who is a Jew. And he says that all of them passed through that sea, that they were, in a sense, baptized. They went under the water and they were brought back out to life. He also uses these words about being under the cloud. And what he's talking about there is that after they had passed through the Red Sea, the Lord's presence dwelled with them, right? It went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, you The Israelites, in spite of the fact that they had not earned it or deserved it, but simply because they were God's people, they were delivered out of Egypt, delivered out of death, into life, and into a place where God's presence dwelled with them physically. This is not dissimilar from what took place at your baptism, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, right? You went under the waters in the likeness of Jesus' death. You were raised to new life in Christ, right? And from that moment on, the presence of the Lord dwelled with you by His Spirit, not only with you, but in fact in you, which is all the more glorious even than what took place in Exodus. So Paul is making a very clear link between what happened then and what has happened to God's people even now. And he goes on to say, right, that after you were baptized and after they were released into the freedom of the Lord with the presence of the Lord, they then partook in the Lord's table in that the Lord provided for them manna from heaven and water from the rock. And Paul says that although all of those things happened physically and in the real physical realm, there's a spiritual reality that was taking place. And although they didn't know to name Christ, it was in fact Christ that was with them, sustaining them in that desert. How glorious a time, right? I mean, could you imagine living through that sequence of events? The Lord sending the plagues to Egypt. 
The Lord sending the angel of death to take every firstborn son whose doorposts were not covered with the blood of the Lamb. To have seen all of that befall Egypt, to have seen the Lord by His own hand deliver you out, part the Red Sea, deliver you to safety, and in the midst of a desert where there is nothing to sustain you, Him provides sustenance from heaven, water from the rock, and to dwell with you in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Man. And yet in verse 5, Paul says this, Nevertheless, in spite of all of those things, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. He doesn't go into all of the details there, but essentially the, the people of God in the wilderness fall into idolatry. They fall into worshiping other gods. They, they decide, you know what, we haven't heard from Moses or God in a while, so maybe we'll just make a cow out of gold and worship that. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet what Paul is warning us about as we'll come to find out in verse 6, is that it is no more ridiculous than the ways that we, as those who have also been set free from death and who now dwell with the presence of the living God among us and are sustained by His table, turn and worship another. That's why he says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. What took place in the past took place as examples for us. What? That we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people who sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put to Christ, put Christ to the test if some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So here's what Paul is saying to the congregation in Corinth and to us by extension. He's saying that it is entirely possible. It is entirely possible to experience the freedom that God has given to us in Christ Right To have been liberated from the slavery of sin, not Egypt, but the slavery of sin and death. To have been delivered out of that, to have been baptized in the waters of death, to have been given new life in Christ, and to experience the presence of the living God among us through His table, and to still walk away. To find ourselves worshiping Something else, someone else. 
it is entirely possible to experience the deliverance of God and be denied the promised land. Which is why he concludes that little section there with verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now listen, I'm not saying this to, to scare anyone in the room this morning. Nor is Paul, for that matter. In fact, I think he's We'll see in just a second, he's, he's actually calling us to, to savor Christ. But I say this because our hearts, I think there's this, uh, there, there's, it, it's safe to say that we, we have an idealistic view of human nature and the human heart. Which is to say that we tend to think of ourselves, when we look in the mirror, none of us, maybe some of us do, but the majority of us would look into the mirror and we would go, like, on a scale, I I think we balance out for the good, right? That's why you ask anyone, even people who don't believe in Jesus, you know, if, if there is a heaven, would you believe that you would go there? And they, what would they say? They'd say, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm basically a good person. And Paul is saying, listen, that temptation only grows stronger when we've tasted of the Lord's grace. It's temptation to believe that we're sort of just covered and that we don't really have to live lives where we have to consider our motivations, where we have to think through what it is that we're worshiping. Are we, in fact, worshiping God or are we using God to worship ourselves? So again, Paul's not saying this to strike fear into people's hearts or to make us doubt or to make us sit there and sort of consistently be biting our nails and fretting. He's just saying, listen, you've got to be careful. Because this has happened before. It is easy to be deceived, brothers and sisters. So what he's saying is, listen, even if you think you stand, even if you think everything's good, right? Even if you've been delivered out of Egypt and everything's wonderful and the Lord's presence is there in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, he's saying, listen, it's still possible. Paul doesn't want us to experience deliverance and not See the promised land. So what does he go on to say in verse 13? And this is where the Lord's comfort comes in. Verse 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What's he saying? He's saying the devil's an old dog with old tricks. Nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes would say. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praise God. 
And so he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. So while no one is immune to idolatry, none of us are immune to testing Christ, none of us are immune to grumbling before the God of heaven, while none of us are immune to those things, we all have that in common. We also have in common that none of those things are new to us, nor are they new to God. One of my, one of my favorite things to, to constantly recall is that the Lord Jesus himself was tempted. The Bible tells us he was tempted in every way. So while some of us may have like, experienced temptation in some ways, Jesus experienced it in every way so that he might empathize with us, so that he might understand our plight. Now, that might not sound all that impressive if you just think Jesus is a man. But if Jesus is, in fact, the preeminent one, if, if he is the firstborn of all creation, meaning that he has preexisted, Right, that he was there in the beginning with God as the heavens and the earth were created. If you believe that from that point on he had dwelled in consistent and constant union with Father and Spirit and he had enjoyed that harmony from eternity past, if you believe that's who he was and that he then, as Philippians 2 says, took upon himself flesh, made himself like one, enough, like one of us, and that even then submitted himself not only to temptation, but then to death within that temptation. So that we might be free. Well, and that changes things, doesn't it? And that's ultimately the power that Paul is calling us to dwell in, to call upon in these moments of temptation where we are tempted to call upon an idol for satisfaction that only God can bring. He's saying, listen, Jesus knows, Jesus has been there, and in the same ways that I have been faithful, that God has been faithful to Jesus, He will be faithful to you in your temptation." He will make a way for you. He will provide that escape for you. You do not have to be ruled any longer. You know, there's this weird moment in the Exodus story where after everything that they had been through, they said, you know what? Hey, um, Egypt was pretty great. And I'm like, Seriously? Any time that we find ourselves succumbing to temptation, it's like us looking at the slavery of sin, looking at all of those things that Christ has freed, freed us from, truly set, like broken the chains, unlocked the gates, right? It's like us looking back at that and saying, you know what, put, put them back on, just for kicks. And 
And the Lord says, no, just like Jesus set you free, Jesus will also keep you from being re-ensnared. Because he knows. Because he's been there. And so here's the thing. Can you, can I, I'm just going to be honest for a minute, and this isn't in, in the notes, um, if you will. So if it's less polished, I apologize. I think there are, are two main reasons that we find ourselves tempted with regards to the Christian life, with regards to idolatrous things. And, and, and Cole talked about him last week. He said essentially that, that falling away, right? Falling away happens when we're either tempted to quit because life is too hard or we're tempted to be careless because the world is too appealing. And so one of those, one of those two things are often what sort of prompts us into entertaining the idea of unrighteousness, unholiness, indulging in sexual immorality or grumbling against the Lord or excessive drinking, whatever it might be. I'm just going to be honest. I'm in a season of life where for me, of those two, tempted to quit because life is just too hard, tempted to give in to unholiness, unrighteousness, because it's just too hard. And you know, what's, what's ironic about all of that is that these places that we think we will find the comfort that we're looking for in those moments, where either life is too hard or the world is just so darn appealing, is that we, like, we really think that they're going to give us satisfaction, and at the end of them, we, we all know, we've all been there in the times and moments afterwards where we come to find out that they're clearly not. You know, it's funny that, it, it's funny that any drink, and not, I mean, not just alcoholic drinks, but any drink that you drink that's not water, eventually you'll find yourself wanting some water, Right? I, I don't know about you, but there's like this coffee addiction that's been brewing in me for a while, pun intended. Um, but the reality is that at the end of the day, like when I'm thirsty, I don't, want, I don't want a cup of coffee. I want a cup of water. And while the coffee might get me through that afternoon lull, while the coffee might help me sort of get through whatever's most immediately pressing at the end of the day, unless I just want to live dehydrated, right, I'm going to need a glass of water. Well, brothers and sisters, in the same way, these worldly offerings of satisfaction at some point meet their end, and we just need water from the rock. just need a cup of water. And God is saying to us through Paul here that that cup of water is never far away. It's never far away because He's not far away. God's not far away. And you know what's so gloriously wonderful about that? 
is that even in the moments where we think he is far away, he's not. And he's not, not because you've been particularly good or because you've sort of managed to curb your appetite for sin or because of whatever you might think you've done, he's close to you because Jesus dwells in you. He's close to you because Jesus was thirsty so that we could be given living water, right? It's Jesus on the cross who's crying out saying, I thirst, I thirst, and who turns around and says to us, guess what? You can come and drink living water without price. It's Jesus who went without so that we could be invited to this table that now Paul says we're invited to, right? This is what he says in verse 15. He says, I speak as to sensible people. He's saying, listen, I'm going to make a rational argument, meaning this won't take much time for us to get through. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, that is this cup right here, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Because, uh, I'm sorry, the, the bread that we break, this bread right here, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And he takes it back to the people of Israel. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? Do I imply that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. It's like the idol is whatever it is. It's, not, it's nothing. It means nothing. But he says this, but, but I do imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so here's the reality, brothers and sisters, you can't be free and a slave at the same time. That's what he's saying. You can't be not in Egypt and in Egypt at the same time. You can't have the proverbial cake and eat it too. He's saying we can't find satisfaction and hope and life and grace and sustenance here and then hope at the same time to find it in its antithesis, which is the world. It's not possible. It's simply not possible. I can drink as much coffee as I want. It will never be water. It will never be water. We can give in to our temptations as much as we want. It will never satisfy the way Christ satisfies. It just won't. And listen, I get it. I am tempted to disbelieve that statement that I just made on a daily, if not hourly, basis. Which is why Paul says these three words that riddle the entire Bible. God 
is faithful. God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. God, again, we're grateful to be gathered together as your people. And to be reminded, Lord, that you are faithful, that the promises that you make, God, you keep. And you have promised, Lord, not only saving grace to us, Lord, not only life in this life, but life in the kingdom to come. You have promised us an eternity, Lord, with an inheritance that cannot be stolen by thieves, cannot be destroyed by moths. And Lord, we intend to collect those promises in Jesus' name and by Jesus' blood. But Lord, among those promises is another promise, which is that you are faithful and that in our moments of weakness, in our moments of temptation, we do not have to give in. You are with us. You are faithful. You will sustain us. You will deliver us to you sanctified. And Lord, one day, no matter how far we may feel from this reality, you will make us like your son Jesus. And we long, even now, to taste the first fruits of that promise in the same way that we will taste the first fruits of your table in the next couple of minutes. Lord, this bread and this cup are a meager and yet glorious foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we will experience as the remnant who were not only delivered from Egypt, but were also given entrance to the promised land. We love you, Lord, and we ask you to hold us closely, to keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever and ever.